uh, I'd like us to just recognize his presence with us again. Lord, you have given us your written word. Help us as a result of reflecting on that today to touch it, to not treat it as an idol or a decoration. Help it, help us, Lord, to let it touch us as deeply as you desire it to. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Question for you this morning. Is this a beautiful Bible? Or is this a beautiful Bible? Yeah. That was my dad's Bible. Is this a beautiful Bible? Or is that a beautiful Bible? Lynn Hendricks, who helps me with these uh, PowerPoints, uh, as we were talking about what we would use on these two Sundays, uh, she came up with this, and she sent it to me. She said, what about this? And I looked closely at it, and it's the very passage we're going to be preaching from this morning. Isn't that incredible? It's amazing. That is a Bible. Why? Because it's read. It's touched. It's used. We are gathering at the beginning as we consider the first chapters of this letter to the Hebrews. It's important every once in a while to go back and get the basics down. And we've been doing that. That author wants us to see what the true foundation and focus of our lives is supposed to be. And at some point we have to do this so that we get what God has given us and understand where the solution comes from, from the problem that we've created. And so in Hebrews chapter 1, we started seeing this Son of God and what He said. And that what He said was greater than anything we've ever heard. And we let Him challenge some of the things that we've been listening to and realize that we have to put it up against what He says because what He said is authoritative and definitive. And then in chapter 2, we looked at the Son of Man. You see, there's four things in this basic back at the beginning here. The Son of God and the Son of Man and the Word of God and the Word of Man. Now, the Son of God spoke and He's the one we need to be listening to and what He said is greater than anything you have ever heard. Then in chapter 2, we saw this Son of God is also the Son of Man and what He did is greater than anything you've ever seen. That gave us purpose because he was made like us. We saw that he walked through a process so that we can understand we can make it through the process he's walking us through. It gives us access into his presence. You can talk to him anytime you want to. And it gives you intimacy because he understands you like no one else does. But now as we get to chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews and then into chapter 4, which is what that picture was, the author turns to the written word. Of God. To explain the power and effect it's to have on the life of a reader. It's not some static collection of facts. It's living and active and it penetrates and judges the heart. And it exhorts us to understand the consequences of both listening to it and not 
listening to it. Third equation I have for you. The Word of God, what it does is greater than anything you've ever read. And I want to unwrap this over these next couple of weeks. And today we want to look at the living Word that penetrates our souls. Hebrews chapter 3 into chapter 4. Now, I've got to begin by telling you we've got a problem here. So I read from an article that speaks about um, George Barna, who is a Christian pollster. Is that what you call him? Yeah, pollster. Not to be a pollist, pollster. Who, who studies our culture. And of some of his work, it says this. The Christian pollster George Barna put together a list of biblical teachings that presumably Christians of every denomination or theological tradition could affirm. That there is absolute moral truth based on the Bible. Biblical teaching is accurate. Jesus was without sin. Satan literally exists. That God is omnipotent and omniscient. That salvation is by grace alone. That Christians have a personal responsibility to share these truths with other people. This is a bare-bones list. It says nothing about the Trinity and the deity of Christ or other important teachings that are essential for salvation. This list has to do not so much with theology as with the assumptions that are behind that theology. That is the world view a person would have. Any minister of whatever denomination, especially a Protestant one, should be able to agree with these basic things that I just listed. But only 51% do. In the meantime, the sheep are hungry and not fed. And many of them have already starved to death. Just 7% of American Protestants overall agree with the biblical tenets on that list. And among them, those who consider themselves born again, just 9%. One out of every 10 individuals who say they're born again, say they agree with those things that were just listed. Based on this research of those who have a biblical worldview, he says uh, that acquiring one is a long-term process that requires a lot of purposeful activity, teaching, prayer, conversation, accountability, and so forth. So this morning, you're going to hear a little regarding this long-term process that requires teaching, prayer, conversation, accountability, and so forth. What we call around here life groups. Because he says if pastors and a church as a whole with a biblical worldview were to strategically and relentlessly assist their congregations in adopting such a way of interpreting and responding to life, the impact on our churches and our families and our societies at large would be enormous. Of of course it would. It's the Word of God. And what it does is greater than anything you have ever read. Now, I'm going to read it. Don't tune out. Just because I don't have a neat story or a big trick, don't tune out. This is the Word of God. 
Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant at all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope which, of which we boast. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested me and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at the first. Then, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest still stands. Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Then the last two verses of chapter 4. I'm sorry, 12 and 13 of chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, the word of God in this passage is clearly the focus. It's quoted no less than five times in this passage, in these 32 verses. And you've got to remember the Hebrew mindset that he's writing to here. They would have referred to the Old Testament as their scripture because that's all they had. And the author uses that word, quoting the Old Testament over and over again to underscore the importance of the role of the Word of God. It certainly makes sense. He's emphasizing our need to study it and apply it because it's the authoritative Word of God. So he says in chapter 4, verse 12, the Word of God is living and active in it. Sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates our souls, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, that verse, let me break it down into a visual diagram for you that shows up here. There are two adjectives, two verbs, and two results. As I said before, it's not some kind of static list of facts. The passage tells us that there are exhortations challenging, penetrating appeals to our hearts to do a certain thing, addressing the condition. It's living, it penetrates, so it exhorts us. It speaks to us of our condition. But it doesn't stop there. Then there's the other side of the diagram. 
It's also active, living. And that means regardless of what we think of the exhortations, it will judge us. And it arrives at the conclusions or the consequences of all that it exhorts us to. And I want to walk through the the exhortation side of this this morning. And then next week we'll we'll come back to the, the judging and the conclusions. So in this penetration, let me give you three things it exhorts us to do. First of all, it says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And this is the first six verses that I read. There's a comparison here of of Moses and Jesus. And that was important to them because as Hebrews, they would have thought back to to Moses. And as I said before, when when we were talking about the Son of God that came out, why is this guy the big deal? You know, we got Moses and, and, and all the prophets. We got Elijah. Why does he get the last word? Well, he's making this comparison to show them he's supreme. First of all, he said in verse nine, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, we see Jesus. Now he's saying, now think Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Moses was part of the house, but Jesus built the house. Moses built something, but Jesus built everything. Moses was a great servant, but Jesus was a great son. And then he goes on to refer to him with these three terms. He's the apostle the high priest, and the builder. Now, you've got to understand what, what this would mean. The apostle. You, you don't call people apostle anymore, do we? Actually, we do. We just don't realize it. An apostle is a sent one. He's one who goes where others have not gone. He is Star Trek before Star Trek was cool. Because those of you who are Trekkies, how does Star Trek begin? To boldly go where no man has ever gone before. They stole it from the Bible. That's the concept of an apostle. Today we call them missionaries. Literally, that word rendered in Greek, then Latin comes out missionary, when this was the concept. The one who goes where no one's gone before. And that's why we invest in sending people to places where this message that we know so well has never been heard. But Jesus was the apostle, the first one to go into this dark realm that we created by our rebellion and bring a light and a redemption to those who were lost in it. He's the ultimate apostle, the first one to go where no one could go before. And then he was the high priest. This is a concept of one who speaks for a person to God, on behalf of men to the Holy One. And he, Romans tells us, sits at the right hand of God interceding for you, praying for You, specifically. He's the great interceder. And he's the great builder. He's the provider and preparer and protector of all that he is creating. He's supreme. He's greater than anything else because he's greater than anyone else. Think Jesus. But who do we think? Who are you listening to? Dr. Phil? Instead of scripture? Or uh, what's the group that sang a little while ago? Stop listening to Oprah? 
we get our wisdom from all these other sources. Think Jesus first. No one compares. And that's why he's so controversial. That's why so many people have problems with him. Because he says what is true and it strikes us to the depth of our souls. Who do you listen to? We wear little bracelets to say, WWJD, what would Jesus do? We ought to create another one. What did Jesus say? We're listening to so much common wisdom that the Bible calls folly, foolishness. Think Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Of course, another application is, where does your mind go when you're not thinking about anything else? I don't know. Nothing. Where does your mind drift to? Do you do what Paul says? Do you think about such things? Do you you think about what's true and, and noble and right and pure and lovely? Admirable, excellent, praiseworthy? Do you think about such things? First exhortation. First, think Jesus. Why? Because you're really glad that no one else can read your mind, aren't you? I know I am. And that's because we know we have a thinking problem filled with worry and filth. Question. Doubt, rebellion, stupidity. Think Jesus. It's the first step to a dynamic, life-changing prayer life, too, as a matter of fact. I was struck by a verse this week in Matthew chapter 11. The gospel writer is just writing about what was happening. He says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. Interesting. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. And he didn't say, at that time, Jesus prayed. Jesus just said it. Apparently, he would just go along and in his conversation, he would, oh, Lord, Father. Because he thought about him so much, he was immediately speaking with him and communicating with him, conversing with him. That's what we ought to be. Thinking Jesus. So that any time we immediately speak to him. I'll give you another exhortation in this passage. Fix your thoughts. Now, fix each other. Look at verses 12 and 14 here. He's encouraging each us to encourage each other. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away, but encourage one another daily as long as you call it today. <clears throat> now, the Jewish side of this, these people had known all this truth, all of this stuff that they had been hearing for centuries. They'd seen the Almighty God work. But they refused to continue to follow, to believe that he could continue to do what he was supposed to. And so he, he gives this, um, this, this appeal. Verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. The rebellion. You see, apparently, a penetrating sword can meet a hard heart. If you want to, you can become callous to the truth. We just hear it so much. 
We get sin-seared hearts. And one of the solutions to this is sticking together, encouraging one another daily, he says in verse 13. It must be better to gather. It is. That's one of the ways we fight that natural tendency to get hard against the truth, is to have brothers and sisters around us who encourage us to follow what we know is true. Apparently it doesn't take long for a sliced heart to become hardened to the next cut. Spirituality isn't attained as much as it's maintained. And that one of the ways that we do that is in togetherness. And it's why we keep talking to you about these life groups that are so essential. And some of you are saying, yeah, yeah, I've been there and I did that. You know, we called it this, we called it that. Don't be there, done that. Be there and do that. Because it's in the community of encouragement with those that we can trust and love and deepen a relationship with that we do not become hardened to the truth that we don't want to accept. The root problem here is not believing. And we need to be fixing each other. And maybe we're in great danger of, of just what these Hebrews were, knowing all of this truth and just becoming hard to it because they knew it all. So a few words from a modern prophet that you may recognize. Well, I got myself a t-shirt, says what I believe. Got letters on my bracelet to serve as my ID. Got a necklace and a keychain and almost every good thing a good Christian needs. I got a little Bible magnets on the refrigerator of my door. Got a welcome mat to bless you as you walk across my floor. Got a Jesus bumper sticker and the outline of a fish stuck on my car. And even though all this stuff is well and good, I cannot stop. I cannot help but ask myself, what about the change? What about the difference? What about the grace? What about forgiveness? What about a life that's showing I'm undergoing some change? You see, I've got this way of thinking that comes so naturally where I believe the whole world is just revolving around me. And I got this way of living that I have to die to every single day because if God's Spirit lives inside of me, I'm going to live differently. I'm going to have the change. I'm going to have the difference. I'm going to have the grace. I'm going to live forgiveness. I'm going to live a life that's showing I'm undergoing the change. What about the change? Is that a question that you are asking yourself and you are having others ask you because you are in a setting of love and trust and care and concern regularly with people that can ask you those kinds of questions. We got to fix each other. I don't mean that you know we're everybody's project. We're just in this together, and we're growing together, and we're listening to what we know is true together, and we're challenging each other to demonstrate the change. 
Which leads me to a final exhortation here in the first two verses of chapter 4. Actually, verse 2. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard and did it combine it with faith. They fell short, verse 1 says. What does that mean? They didn't combine it with faith. They had seen God work. They had intellectually understood. They would even followed in the desert out of Egypt. But they didn't trust that God could continue to care for them. They didn't believe that He had their best interest in mind, just like He said. And I think there's a lot of Christians like Christians like that. They may believe the historical account of the Bible and, and even understand what He did in sending Jesus, but that doesn't mean that they've trusted Him with their whole lives. They haven't given everything over to Him because they're convinced that He will never abuse them. He'll never take advantage of them. He always has their best interest in mind. That's taking the message and combining it with faith. Later, the author says, without faith it's impossible to please God. You've got to take what you understand and combine it with a faith that says, no matter what happens, I know I can trust this one. Any penetration here? Anything short of this is unbelief. Are we faithing the message? Do we trust God with every circumstance of our lives? Are we convinced and live like we're certain He has our best interest in mind at all times? Or do we doubt Him because we think He might have some kind of hidden agenda? Someone said adversity doesn't build character. It reveals it. And our society is just crying out for authenticity, for people who will be real in real situations. And how can we offer an authentic message of Christ if we aren't living this genuine walk that shows a difference, a change? What about the change? What about the difference? What about grace and forgiveness? And a life that's undergoing some change. See, that's what the Word of God does. It exhorts us and it penetrates. It's greater than anything you've ever read. It explains our condition. So, fix your thoughts. Think Jesus first. Fix each other. Encourage hearts to stay soft. And you know what? You can't do that if you don't have a close, deep, growing relationship with other people. Because all it is then is accusation and judgment. But if you have that relationship, then together we stay soft, understanding, open to what God is saying to us. And we combine what we know then with what, what, what we believe and we begin to faith the message. And this is nothing new. The Bible has been telling us to do this since we first heard about it. It's so basic. But many of us have moved on from this because we, we think we got it at the beginning and, and we've walked away. And thus, the statistics in this article. And as a result, 
We end up with Bibles that look like this. So pretty. So white. So untouched. When we ought to have Bibles that look like this. So colored. So broken. So used. Your Bible is one of the only material possessions you own that the more you wear it out, the better off you are. used to carry one when I was in high school because I was a good kid that went to youth group. It was called The Way. It had cool pictures on the cover. It had testimonies of athletes, half of them Dave Bratton knew. And it was all worn out on the outside. My sweaty hands got it all, you know, and it looked great on the outside. And it was all white on the inside. Our Bibles ought to be falling apart because we don't know everything about thinking Jesus and we've got to find it. And let it penetrate that soul and divide those thoughts and cause us to see the change, make the change, and faith the message like he's asked us to do. Oh, man. Let's pray that we wear out some Bibles. Strengthen each other and show the change. Pray with me. Forgive us, Lord, for treating it like an idol. For making sure we've got the right translation or the right study notes or all the pretty maps. Thank you for the privilege of having so many that we can study from. Teach us, Lord, to let it touch us. And may we be guilty of wearing it out because we want to thank you first. Bring the change. Live the message that we know you've revealed. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.